Hello everyone, welcome back to Reservations. We're your host, I'm Rain Whalen. And I'm Jeremy Blair. Uh, before we get started, I just want to wish, I mean, of course this episode comes out, but you know what? Happy Mother's Day to all the, the mothers mother, out there. It is Mother's Day. Today. Today, while we're recording. It will not be on Tuesday. Right, right. but you know what? Happy belated Mother's Day uh, to all our listeners out there who are moms, uh, you know. You know, or grandmas. Or, honestly, our moms. Our listen. moms. Hey, my mom doesn't even listen. Yes, she does. She comments. That's true. Uh, our only commenter. Uh, yeah. You know what? Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to get mad at you guys right now. We'll, we'll save that for later. I feel like every time I mention that, you, you, you're you ready to oh, yeah. grab him by the throat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah, I'm pretty fired up most of the time. Uh, F you, fired up? Fired up. That's a good movie. No, it's not. That's what we're talking about today. No, it's not. <laughs> Thank <laughs> God. Uh, but yeah, happy Mother's Day to everyone out there who are moms, grandmothers. Uh, hope you have a, well, we hope you had a special day. Uh, if you are having a belated Mother's Day, we hope you have a great day. Um, and also, didn't I see you last night again? You did. Yeah. Uh, did a murder mystery. Yeah, dude, that was, uh, that was that tight. Was, that was fun. It was fun. Uh, and then we almost had another murder mystery, uh, the case of me not telling everyone that the cookies had peanut butter in them. <laughs> um, yeah. We almost killed Jeremy last night. Yeah, I um, I usually don't just eat you know stuff I don't know what it is anyway. But Haley was just like holding it in front of my face. I was like. Ow. You know, and yeah. just taking bites, uh, small bites. Didn't eat the whole cookie, thank God. Yeah, that's why he didn't die. Yeah, I didn't even get a reaction. It is crazy. Um, it's well, been 11 years since I've had a peanut anything. So, um, well, and I think because we, since we jumped on it pretty quickly, got you a Benadryl and everything like that. Yeah. Uh, I think that's why you didn't die. Yeah, maybe. But also, of course, you've always told me uh, since we were in high school that your peanut allergy isn't like, I mean, it's it's serious, but it's not like. It will kill me, I don't think. Yeah. Well, but, I, I mean, mean it'll, but then why risk it? Right, exactly. Like, I don't want to, like, find out. You know what I mean? You know what? Let's test this. You know, on camera. I've uh, had lots of people, like, pitch that to me. Like, why don't you just test it again? I go, why don't you? Why you know don't I, mean? I don't do that? Yeah. Why don't you, like, suck a big old fat donkey balls? Because, like, <laughs> I don't want to do that. So, I uh, would rather not have to pay for hospital. It's the equivalent. Hospice. Listen, we'll get to the movie in a second. Hang on. It's the equivalent of, I think it's so rude when people are like, I want to see you drunk. And it goes, why? Why? You know I mean? That's mean. I think that it's mean because they're just like, you're boring, but I think it'll be fun drunk or whatever. And it's right. like, that's fucking rude. <laughs> First of all. Yeah. Two, uh, go to AA. All right. Because it's like, <laughs> <laughs> and by the way, they're right. I am kind of fun because I, you know, I. I don't know, you, you know, all the stories you've told me, you just drink an Amazon. I do, but that's when I'm by myself. I drink and friends an don't let friends drink an Amazon. Because then well, you end up with weird shit. Oh my god, dude. I I bought a lot of stuff. I, I own the complete box set of Hell on Wheels on DVD. Why? I don't know. I heard that was not even that good of a show. I think it was on sale, and I was like, oh, that's cheaper than I thought it was going to be. <laughs> and there's probably a reason why it was so cheap. Yeah, maybe. It's not even on Blu-ray. They make it on Blu-ray. So what you're saying is you have a worthless uh, format. This DVD is dead. Yeah. Actually, uh, people buy DVDs still more than they buy Blu-rays and 4Ks. That's, no. It's true. No. 
Blu-ray or 4K. Well, of course, but like that's for us. Like for the layman or for the novice film watcher, Ooh, they layman. don't give a shit. Layman. Oh god. Anyway, uh, should have yeah. been nice in this thing. It's uh, loud. Yeah, had a lot of fun. Almost killed you. Yep. Uh, now on to the movie. Yeah. Uh, so if you listened to last week, uh, which I hope everyone actually liked last week, I did. Uh, Love talking about that movie. Um, movie was tight. Yeah, yeah. Um, but this week, I finally uh, pulled a you. And recommended a classic. Yeah. Um, a movie widely considered to be uh, one of, I mean, there's many greatest films ever made, but one of considered one of the greatest films ever made. And that is 1950's Sunset Boulevard. Um, I talked about it a little bit last week, but this movie, and I didn't really realize it until rewatching it, that it is, it's so meta for 1950 yeah i think it's just because it it takes place in hollywood it takes place modern day yeah modern day for them right modern day for them hollywood mm-hmm. and uh, there are people in the industry in the movie right yeah so yeah. and you know we'll dive into this like a whole bunch but i mean the fact that it's Gloria Swanson anyway uh, dude and right? she crushes it and the fact that you know, she is basically playing a version of herself. Yeah. Um, because this was her career path also. Yes. So um, those pictures in her house, those are all really her mm-hmm. uh, from her silent film days when she says that Paramount wouldn't be Paramount without her. That's true of that Gloria is. Swanson, right? Yeah. Um, and the fact that it's a Paramount film that part of the movie takes place on the Paramount lot yeah. is also kind of you know trippy. Um, so yes, I, I, I get what you mean because yeah. it is very, you know, it's a, it's a showbiz movie. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It, it's a movie about kind of the inner workings of Hollywood and especially during this time. So I guess we're just going to go ahead and jump right into it. Yeah. Uh, you know, especially during this time, it's the 1950s talkies have, reign supreme now people are now watching as norma puts it they're watching with their ears um hearing the sound because of course as we mentioned in the <clears throat> chaplain episode um silent films were also reigning supreme pretty back, obsolete by, by this point well of course but i mean even by 1940 yeah they don't exist right mm-hmm. uh Chaplin was the only one still doing it up until that point. That was when he stopped. Yeah, was because as we mentioned in that episode, the only reason why he would is because the tramp couldn't talk. Right. But anyway. Uh, yeah. And so, you know, and so we have this story of a forgotten silent film star who has become jaded towards, at this point, this is New Hollywood. Uh, of course, the 1970s would bring in another wave of New, new Hollywood. Hollywood. But anyway, she's very jaded towards New Hollywood because talkies are a thing. Um, because as we, I think we touched on it in the Chaplin episode, when talkies became a thing, a lot of these silent film stars, directors, well, uh, not directors, but uh, their voices never matched. Well, and it the, they're just... They could do it. It's not like they couldn't, right? It, mm-hmm. It's, you know, a lot of the first actors ever in 
motion pictures were stage actors. And so it's not like they've never spoken dialogue before. Right. Right. But it is strange to sort of put this sensibility that they're so used to in this sort of uh, this routine way of filmmaking that they've gotten used to, Mm. to where now it's completely different now we have scripts with dialogue we have you know they're going to hear our voices Mm. right this isn't the kind of stories we're used to making right right and so a lot of these guys were left behind because now not only are they not used to it the public definitely isn't and so hearing the tramp talk Mm. would be weird because they're not used to it right right and it doesn't fit with the character and it doesn't fit with the film right Mm -hmm. but they don't want to sit in silence with a piano player if they don't have to now because right. they don't have to. Now they have an option to go see a film with music and dialogue, mm-hmm. right? So a lot of these people just got left behind. And uh, and in our movie, Norma oh, Desmond, fuck, Desmond um, had been left behind. Um, Hollywood had basically forgotten her. Uh, but she still clings to this idea of well, one day the movies will want me back, um, which is very fitting uh, for Gloria Swanson, who is playing the character, because this was her comeback from the silent film days. Yeah. Um, but unlike her character, she fully accepted the fact that Hollywood had moved on from her. And she was okay with that. Or at least from silent films. From Yes. Right. And she was okay with that. Um, but I, And I think that's what makes her performance so great is the contrast between Gloria and the character of Norma because Norma hasn't yeah. accepted that Hollywood's moved on. And it's, you know, visually represented by how she lives. She's a recluse, right? Yes. So when she's constantly living inside... Um, her her hopes and dreams become delusions. Yes. Right? Which is what ends up happening, right? Right, yes. Um, and I would like to point out Max, her uh, servant, her first husband. Yes. Um, is beautifully parodied in the film Cats Don't Dance. If you've ever seen Cats Don't Dance. Oh my God. Um, yes. They're surely they're surely <laughs> Temple character and Cats Don't Dance has a servant named Max. Yes, oh and even God. wears the white gloves. And um, and he's big and stocky. Oh my God, dude. Yeah, yeah, so, I haven't thought about Cats Don't Dance in so long. That's a shame. Because Cats Don't Dance is amazing. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, future episode? Maybe. Maybe. I mean, <laughs> I you know, we've already movie. done a whole episode on the Goofy movie. We might as well do a, another one from our childhood. Oh, Cats Don't Dance is so good. Anyway. Anyway. So, uh, <laughs> but it does, it is relevant because Max is parodying in that. But, um... Uh, but anyway, being a recluse, right? Yeah. So um, not having a lot of contact with the outside world and really just living within your own. Um, yeah, isn't really. And if someone that is there is playing into this delusion by writing her fan letters, right? Mm-hmm. It's not helping. No. Right? So the delusions start off really small, right? Right. She's not. She hasn't succumbed to this fantasy world mm-hmm. 
in the beginning of the movie where right. you know she is relatively lucid yeah she yeah she's got a couple of things where she's like you know they're gonna want me back i still get fan mail every day i am important still i'm relevant still and obviously none of that is true right and it's it, it's it's the meeting of joe that sets her on this trajectory where her mental state steadily declines with the delusions and especially when she visits set for the first time in years and she swarmed and it's it's almost one thing after another that sets her mental state on this path and because no one tells her the truth either so mm-hmm. no one is going to tell her that they just want her car right right yeah that's why she keeps getting calls from paramount and and uh cecil demille who plays himself uh doesn't have the heart to tell her that the script that her and joe had been working on is terrible is terrible um and it's you know i wouldn't say it's a story of someone going crazy because she already kind of like the shining uh she already starts sort of crazy yeah yeah. but opposite the shining she doesn't start off as a 10 like jack nicholson does she starts out i would say as a three yeah yeah and then it escalates from there yeah Um, to like a 12 oh uh, (laughs) (laughs) poor joe gillis man well, I mean, uh, okay, okay. <laughs> Let me rephrase. Did he deserve to be shot? No. No. He deserved something, but he didn't deserve to get shot. Because he is taking advantage of this woman. Yes. After a while, right? Like, yes. at first, I think he's doing the right thing. He's like, please don't, like, give me any special treatment. I appreciate you letting me stay here, blah, 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 all that stuff. Yeah, but then when all the, the fancy clothes start coming in, he doesn't want it to stop. Yeah, I mean, those clothes are super fancy. So. Oh, yeah, my boy would be looking hella tight, yeah. uh, hella fresh on New Year's Eve. Yo, bro, he'd be looking fresh. I mean, it's like, uh, yeah, not even a question. With that <laughs> zoot suit. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but I guess that, that kind of can lead us to the character of Joe, yeah. played by uh, William Holden. Um, Joe is... He's pretty much anyone who's ever wanted to write a script. Me being one of them. Uh, you you think you got a good idea, and then someone's like, "Nah, yeah, this sucks. This sucks. Go away. We don't want to make movies with you anymore." Right. Um, <laughs> and what I like about you know our introduction to Joe is he's dead. Yes. Uh, right. Uh, Joe is floating in the pool that he's always wanted. Right. Yeah. Um, and I love the shot of him in the pool if uh, the one that's looking up at him i wonder how long william holden had to be in the pool for that shot who knew right uh but it's very reminiscent of this shot in the night of the hunter uh oh hey i have that over there where this this woman in a car is underwater mm-hmm. right um i won't say more than that because you need to see the movie i will uh but it's amazing and uh, it's very reminiscent of that, which I, I love. I love when, you know, these films that I think people may consider pretty lo-fi mm-hmm. or whatever, you know what I mean? Like, not very creative, and they do stuff like this. And Oh, yeah. Especially people that have never seen a classic film may not know just how creative they can be and were, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. And, and a sidebar, speaking of, and that's another reason why I wanted to pick this one, because... You know, this is during a kind of a, a turning point in Hollywood. Shout out to our noir episode. 
because um, this is a noir film. It is. Um, this is almost a turning point in Hollywood because films are becoming <clears throat> darker in tone. And Now, this is 1950s, so we yeah. are sort of... We're not out of the woods yet with film noir, mm-hmm. but we're getting there. Right. Because right? um, film noir really started in the late 30s or you know, yeah. whatever. Uh, go back. Uh, I'll put a link up here. Go back and listen to our noir episode. Uh, Hope we got two hours. Yeah, that was when that was when we had two hours to spare. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but anyway. Um, but yeah. you're right. It has a lot of the film noir tropes. Um, the city is very important. This mm-hmm. movie could not take place in Iowa. Right? No. It has to be in Hollywood. Yep. Right? Um, this film... Uh, murder. It's a murder mystery. Murder. Because we don't know who killed Joe. Joe, but we know he is dead. Right? Yes. Uh, and of course the narration is very noir-ish, right? Mm-hmm. Noir-like. Um, the the cinematography is very dark and yeah, the the film is and and we will touch later more on the the technicalities of the film, but the film is beautifully shot. Yeah, yeah. Um and you know, and this movie especially has tropes that have been later mimicked, as in, you know, we, you know, hear like, I'm only using this one because they blatantly call out Sunset Boulevard, kick ass. Okay. Uh, he narrates the entire movie, but then when he's about to, well, well, the audience thinks he's about to die, he says, come on, man, have you never seen a movie? Have you never seen Sunset Boulevard? Um, pretty much implying that even though he's probably about to die, he's still going to be narrating the movie. Right. As what Joe does. Right. He, he narrates from beyond the grave, right? Yeah. Which uh, I love because the movie starts in third per- uh Well, not third person, but he's using pronouns. Dumb kid. Got the pool he always wanted. And then it switches to first using his pronouns. Like, I. And you're like, wait. Was that? Are you? Wait. Yeah, he's the one who's dead. Our narrator yeah. is dead. Um, Which is fan, especially when we finally, when we see everything that happens and we get back to the beginning and he even says, and this is where you came in. And it's like, oh, it's so good. Yeah. It's so good. But, you know, the and, and Sunset Boulevard really, really captured something with this narration and showing us the end, even uh, as we've made it blatantly obvious we're big american dad fans there's a whole episode where they essentially do sunset boulevard yeah uh steve and his jello pool <laughs> yeah um and it's sunset boulevard just with american dad and more jokes right um but yeah you know and uh, i just love it man again as i've said on the on the podcast before i love an unreliable narrator mm-hmm. but joe is not unli- uh, unreliable but he's, he's not alive he's not alive though right um i also really liked in the in the beginning the title is part of the set it is not uh it's not a uh, it's not text that is being overlaid on top of the film right Right. it is part of the film yes which i love yeah we see the which is how maholland drive does it yeah we see the street name on the uh, on the curb Mm -hmm. and then again when he gets to the house yes um which is so rad. I just, I, I love it. It's how Apocalypse Now does it uh, mm. near the end of the film where he goes to that island where, um, 
where he's to rescue the colonel or whatever. Right. I uh, don't remember if it was a colonel or not. <laughs> and, sorry. Um, and it says Apocalypse Now, like, graffitied on one of the rocks, right? Because he was told it has to be there. Um, mm. He can't just not have a title at all, right? Right. But I just love it when they use set pieces. Oh, yeah. and To show you the title. And also, if anyone doesn't know, Sunset Boulevard is a street in L.A., most of Hollywood's elite live on that street. I guess. I guess. I don't, I don't know. I don't know about anymore. Yeah, probably not anymore. Uh, and coincidentally, our set, our house, isn't even on Sunset Boulevard. It's on a completely different street. But Don't tell anybody. Oh, no. Uh, but they did some good trickery that you think it is. Right. But anyway, uh, yeah, so do I, man. Like I, I always love it when a film does that. We're... we're they use the set piece to give us our title. Yeah. Without flashing it on the screen or mm-hmm. anything like that. But, um, yeah, man. But so Joe, Joe, like I said, he didn't deserve to get shot, but Joe, he, he needed, he needed something. Cause my man, he's dodging creditors trying to take his car. Mm-hmm. That, that sweet ass coupe. Um, and he can't pitch a movie to save his life. So this is what's really interesting is that maybe in the very beginning you think that eventually he will either be asked to go see Norma mm. or um, be be handed a script to look at that's from Norma or finally get one greenlit and want Norma. But Norma is only he only meets her on accident yeah it's completely coincidental that he even drives to that house in the first place yeah um yeah i was kind of misremembering i was telling someone about it i was like yeah "Yeah, we're gonna do sunset boulevard and i was misremembering because they how the film starts and how it's progressed before this point you think exactly that. You think that something's going to bring them together. Right. You think that part of the the narrative will be them having met, having to meet each other for their jobs, for show business. Right. And it doesn't end up being that. As way. where it's a uh, highly implausible car chase where the creditors just happen to see Joe like, there's no way. Like, what is this? What is this? Home Alone 2 Lost in New York writing where they only think there's 300 people in New York? Oh, my God. Anyway. Uh, yeah. And then they chase Joe and he somehow loses them. And it's like, oh, hey, an empty garage. Oh, flat tire. Oops. Right. Oops. Flat Oops. tire. Uh, and then. And he, I think originally he chooses that home because it looks abandoned. Yes. Because Norma hasn't is, kept it up. Am I said to myself didn't write it down but i was like oh it's like gray gardens like he shows up and it's like this <laughs> it's like this dilapidated house where people still live there oh my god it is dude. Yeah, yeah uh oh watch gray gardens um or if you don't want to be bummed out watch uh <laughs> documentary now's parody of it with bill Hader and fred armison i guess so it's funny. the same but it, well it's have you never seen documentary yeah, 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 oh, no, okay I, yeah but i guess it's the, the same concept you'll get whatever you need yeah. to for but, this, you know, 
analogy. Yes. <laughs> uh, but yeah, well, and to a T, too, also, because even Norma acts like... Yes, and um, Haley was crocheting next to me while we were watching the movie, and she mentioned, she goes, wow, why is she talking like that? And I, and I thought about it, and I said, it's because she's always performing. Yes. She's never genuinely herself. I think her life has become this performance mm-hmm. that she needs to live up to what she believes is people's expectations of her. Yes. She needs to be this very over-the-top, outlandish, um, larger-than-life person, mm-hmm. um, even if that might not be true. Yeah. Excuse me, everyone. Uh, I 100% agree because, you know, she, as we mentioned in terms of uh, her mental state, she starts out of three, sort of, sort of maybe not fully grasping reality, but she's lucid enough. Yeah. Um, but yeah, she she talks with this very, in her mind, very elegant. It's very theatrical voice, yeah. and she's almost using, which is very ironic, this the the mid Atlantic accent, which oh, yes. is um, the fake accent that's part American, part British, right? Uh-huh. Uh, that actors would use for their performances during the, the 50s and 40s, and which is ironic because she wouldn't know anything about that. <laughs> because, yeah. Right? Um, because she wouldn't have had to talk for most of that. Right, and she hates Hollywood now, so why would she see a movie, right? Right. Um, she only watches her movies. So it's very interesting, and it might be because this film is being filmed during that time. Right. That she's putting on, that Gloria Swanson, Swanson is, right. is putting on a mid-Atlantic accent for Norma Desmond, for her very theatrical, you know, which would be technically a mistake. Um, yes. On, on a, you know, timeline standpoint um which is a fun little goof i guess if that's even true yeah it it could have been just normal was like i think her voice would sound like this yes and right i think she would be very over the top and very theatrical well yeah because you know when we meet her she's wearing sunglasses inside (laughs) yeah you know which is still tight as hell i mean yeah it's still super rad so anyone who wears sunglasses inside you're super cool so that Um, never goes away uh and yeah, and then Joe, you know, so so it's all accidental that puts Joe and Norma together, uh, especially him getting uh, confused for, um, I guess a funeral home mm-hmm. guy I've, to bury her pet monkey. <laughs> yes, yes, she does have a monkey, and the monkey is dead. That is correct. Um, yeah, and that's also sort of just a coincidence that. That monkey just so happened to just pass away. Right. Right. Yeah. At least I hope so. I hope it wasn't like a month or so ago. Right. Um, And she just kind of kept him there. Now, I do want to jump a little bit ahead. That's all right. That's all right. This is your show. This is, thank you. This (laughs) is, I think, my favorite little nod to, um, to both. Gloria Swanson's career and silent film in general. Okay. Buster Keaton is oh, playing yeah. cards with her. Um, yeah. He is one of the, the her actor friends who is playing cards at the, the card table. And um, there is a wonderful documentary about Buster Keaton and his career. Um, it's called... I don't know. 
but uh, <laughs> I don't remember what it's called. I'm so um, sorry, guys. When uh, when I edit this in post, I may like put like uh, like a poster. Or something, yeah, it'd be right? great because yeah, I'll tell you because it's like the Cohen whatever, not Cohen Brothers, but like the Cohen distributors for Blu-rays put it out and they do document. I don't matter, but um, it's wonderful. And so it it talks about how talkies sort of changed his career path, right? Right. Um, and not for the better. Ooh. Yeah. So uh, his career, where Chaplin's got... Bigger. Or, or didn't decline, right? Due to talkies. Right. His got... His were still successful, just as successful as his other ones. Keaton, no. Keaton did not, right? Okay. Um, and so the fact that he's there at the table, the fact that this is Gloria Swanson's, or, um, sorry, Norma Desmond's trajectory, her career, mm-hmm. um, it makes sense. Where Buster still worked for a while in talkies, right? Mm-hmm. Not extremely successful, right? And they weren't very good. Oh, yeah. Um, because after a while, you know what? It doesn't matter. See the documentary. <laughs> he stopped making his own movies, right? Um, um, which is a mistake, but that's fine. Uh, he didn't sign with United Artists when Chaplin asked him to. Um, he stayed with another production company and they screwed him and blah, 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 that stuff. So Chaplin was like, I told you. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so the fact that Buster's there. He's it, the one who says pass, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, he it's he doesn't really talk, really, which is makes sense. Right. Um but he does have dialogue. And this would be two years before he would be in Charlie Chaplin's last um American film, Limelight. I got um, that on my uh, wish list. It's amazing. Uh so Keaton is in that with Chaplin in the scene together. And they're doing these very traditional silent film tropes in this talkie. And it's hysterical and it's wonderful. And, you know, they're perfect together, right? Yeah. So um, he's not out of the woods yet. He's still working. Right. But if you're at all familiar with his career, his presence being there is more powerful. Because you know that he went through a similar thing, not quite as dramatic, but a similar thing that uh, Norman Desmond is going through. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. In, so, in the sense of relevance in Hollywood. So it's almost like a... a um, maybe we should start a counter for it, but a, a meta reference within a meta reference sort of thing. I suppose. Because, you know, we're already... The film it's, as a whole is a... Is a uh, 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 um, I had the word because I didn't want to say meta again. Uh, but it, it's essentially a commentary. There we go. A commentary on how 1950s Hollywood treated uh, silent film stars. And yeah. then in this one scene, how these... Or for sure how 30s filmmaking and 40s filmmaking, um, the way they treated them, where they ended up. Right. Right. Um, because again, like... It's hard to explain, but as soon as talkies became a thing, it's almost like, you know, no one wanted to see a silent film ever again. Right. right? Um, which is hard to imagine, but it, it, it was a pretty fast transition, right? Mm-hmm. It didn't happen in a year, but it was pretty quick. Right. right. Um, 
so so yeah so buster being there is extremely relevant and a little heartbreaking right because they're almost kind of saying and i don't remember if the other two were i just love buster keaton so that's why i just bring up buster keaton but yeah uh, the other two also might have been silent film actors also yeah, I mean, the, the, I should have checked the... Um, I should have also checked. Checked the credits. Sorry, everyone. Um, uh, because, you know, there's a little part at the end of the credits that says, you know, uh, as themselves. Right. I didn't see Buster's name on there, but... He might not have been credited, right? Oh, yeah. Because uh, it was kind of just like a cameo. Well, no. He's credited at the beginning. Oh, is it? Um, during the opening scroll... Well, uh, it's not scrawl, but during the opening credits. Oh, I might have been writing... Words. His name pops up okay i didn't i missed that but, uh, I, I must have been writing something down uh well, but speaking of chaplin oh yeah <laughs> uh what's really fun and that i just love uh that she does a little tramp uh, yeah a little chaplin performance for joe right uh-huh. um i mean complete with hat mustache and cane and everything i mean it's great well and and you know and it's again another again i think i should start a counter Again, another meta reference within a meta film because Gloria Swanson was acting during yes during the Tramps rise. Not sure if they knew each other or not, but um, but yes. And so Chaplin was the biggest star in Hollywood mm-hmm. during her time. In, um, so it's in almost like, of course she would know. Of course, everyone knew who he was. How, how to do a full... And it's almost like, well, yes, a full routine, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, but it's almost like she doesn't want to perform one of her things because it's almost like she wants him to realize how good silent films were. So let me show you the best. Right. right. And in her opinion, and my opinion, that would be <laughs> Chaplin. Right. Yeah, and she even had the the bendable cane. It's wonderful. And, yeah. and she killed it. The only thing she really needed was the big floppy shoes. Yeah, yeah. But other than that, I mean... It was I, pretty great. It's I cool wa- that she I, had that stuff. I wonder if maybe uh, Billy Wilder, the director, was like, all right, Gloria, and for this scene, you're going to mimic Charlie Chaplin. Do you, oh, she was like, I got it. I got it. I got this. Yeah. Billy Wilder is amazing, by the way. Yeah, uh, he's a legend in in Hollywood and in filmmaking. Oh yeah, and and so, but uh, yeah, I love and I completely forgot about that sequence. And so well, when I it start, when it started happening, I was like, oh my god! I I forgot about the the romantic subplot between oh, him yeah. and that and the reader. Right? I oh, completely forgot about. Oh, that. um, and if it weren't for making Norma jealous, I would have done without it. I could have definitely done without. Oh, him uh, and without, Betty. Yeah, without Joe and Betty. I didn't. I didn't really like it. And twenty twenty one eyes. That's gross because she's super young. <laughs> so, um, how old is barely twenty one? I think. Oh yeah, and he's like at least in his thirties, or at least forty. I yeah. mean, he's William Holden. He's old. Oh yeah. <laughs> you know. Um, yeah, I'd say I didn't even think about that. The only gross part I thought about is that he's hitting on an engaged woman. Oh, and she's engaged. That's also true. But 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 she was one. But two. she, I guess I don't know. I don't like it. I don't like the whole thing. But the fact that it does play into the end, it has to be there. So yeah, well, uh, and I kind of agree a little bit because like they set it up to be that Joe's gonna eventually leave Norma for Betty, and I was like, oh okay. Uh, 
but then he intentionally breaks Betty's heart. Yeah. And leaves Norma anyway. Yeah. Leaves. He plans to leave. But she's like, no, you're going to leave this life, my guy. But no, but it, it that just, was funny. But it just makes... Not necessarily... It just... Like, I, I don't get then why set it up. Why, 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 why have the subplot mm-hmm. if he's just going to in, intentionally get her away from him, push her away. Mm-hmm. And then and, leave. And then leave Norma anyway. Right. Especially after the speech he gives, like, I know it's not the most admirable thing, but, you know, I've got custom made shoes and 18 suits and this and that. And it's just like, then why do all this? Right. Like, I don't know. I don't know either, but... Um, I'm sure there's a reason for it. Here's what's also really interesting about this film is the suicide subplot oh, with yeah. Norma Desmond. It's explicit. Yeah. Um, that Yeah, because we hear Max say that there's been attempts because... So that's why there's no locks on the doors, right? Yes. Um, and then when they have a fight on New Year's Eve and Joe leaves, she tries to kill herself. Yeah. Um, yeah, and it's very explicit that she will do it again. Yeah, and, and the fact, I mean, I haven't seen many classic films that deal with suicide like this. Mm-hmm. And so it's sort of jarring because you're like, oh, you know, especially this is during the code, right? Oh, like, yeah. I didn't know they could do that. I, I, I didn't realize Um, that they could even show her with the bandages on her arms and even say, I tried to kill myself, right? Mm -hmm. Um, It it was sort of odd because you would think that wouldn't be allowed during the the production codes. And this was 1950. They were being enforced. Yeah, a very... You got to kind of gloss over everything, you know? Yeah, but also, just like the MPAA... It's like they pick and choose when to enforce it, right? Because this is a showbiz film, oh, right? Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. oh, showbiz film? Oh. Do whatever you want. Oh, yeah, really show uh, how bad actors really got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because uh, <laughs> it's like, oh, cool, you get, oh, you got Cecil in this thing? Hell yeah. Hell yeah. Um, so <laughs> it's a bit, it might also be a bit iffy. On that as well. I was just surprised that yeah. not only could they explicitly talk about it, but almost show. Right. They didn't show her cutting her wrist, but the aftermath. Right. Yes. Uh, yeah. The, she did that. Yeah. Her, band, her wrists are bandaged and she tells Joe that I'll do it again. Um, which brings me to a point I wanted to talk about of the emotional manipulation in the film also. Um, a way for her to keep Joe around. Too, because by this point he's gotten used to being around her, how to handle her. Um, but when Max tells him that she tried to commit suicide, he rushes back. Mm-hmm. And then again, the point of just making that she said she would do it again. For me, at least, rewatching this for the first time in a long time, he almost feels obligated. Yeah, to want to stay. Yeah, and make sure she doesn't do it again. Right. Um, which, because, you know, then in the next scene, um, he's swimming in the pool and everything's hunky-dory. Yeah. Um, You're right. It is emotional manipulation on her part. Oh, yeah. To get him to stay. 
but he's also manipulating her for material possessions. Yeah. So it's like, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. neither of them are right or wrong. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because he, he never tells her, he tells the audience through narration that her script is terrible. Right. He doesn't tell it to her. Um, and chooses to actually write the full screenplay. Mm. Uh, and, you know, he doesn't, probably because Max would kill him, but he's like, he's not going to tell her about the fan letters. He's not going to, well, he does eventually, but yeah. he doesn't tell her about the car. Uh, that that's why Paramount wanted her. I don't think he ever told her that. No, he does. He, he does. does at the very end okay. when he when he's packing up his shit and he. I must have forgotten about that. He finally just tells her everything. Yeah. Because uh, then he tries to get Max on his side, uh, and Max is so deep in the delusions and the lies. Yes. That he's not gonna. He has been, I guess, in a certain way institutionalized. He is on board with everything. Mm-hmm. Right, that Norma's doing, which is, you know, not healthy. Yes, right. No, absolutely not. Because you know, as as it's revealed, um, when Max and uh, Joe have their conversation, you know, Joe's like, "Why don't you just tell her the truth?" And Max is like, "I'm the one who made her star in the first place. I'm not gonna see that fall." Yeah, which is a weird kind of. Uh, trying to think of the right word uh, i think it was a a i almost laughed when uh max reveals he was her first husband oh yeah it was very dramatic the i the, was her first husband bum, 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 bum. yeah right uh, that i think it's because it's so cliche now that that's why it made me like chuckle a little bit but um I, but it makes sense it makes sense why he it doesn't make sense why he's stuck around, but it does make sense why he doesn't want to break this delusion, right? Why make life worse for himself? It's almost is it's almost like uh, um, shit. I had it, man. Damn it, I had a hand, hand, hand. Give me a second. Give me a second. I'll find it again. Um, it's almost like he's he's invested so much time in her that he doesn't want to that if anything breaks the investment. Well, I've just wasted all this time now. Right. He doesn't want to have wasted his time. That makes sense. Yeah. At least that's how I interpret it. Especially when he tells Joe that, you know, I'm the one who made her a star. I directed all of her early films. You know, it may be humiliating to you why I came back. But, you know, and it's... It's very obvious that he, in some form, Max cares for her. Uh, But again, I think it all, you know, using the term investment again... He's 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 just invested so much time in building her career that it's like, well, if the illusion breaks. Well, and it also plays into how irrelevant both of them now are. That right. not only is she a has been, he was a director. And no one knows yeah, when they roll up the Paramount. No one knows who he is. Yeah. Uh it, it takes an old ass security guard to know like, oh that's that's Norman Desmond, let her in. Yeah. And no one knows who Max is, right? Yeah. Uh the fact that he was a, a film director and directed movies she was in that made her famous, which means they were successful, mm-hmm. um is so odd, right? Yes. That really Hollywood has really left these guys behind. Yes. Yeah, especially when, you know, um when Max also tells Joe that there were three directors who uh, I lost the line, but essentially that they were the ones who really kind of molded everything. 
Cecil DeMille, another one, and then Max Vaughn, whatever Max's last name is. And you're like, oh, so you you helped mold the way this is, but no one knows who you are anymore. Right. And I think it, you know, for me, because I've seen what happens when they you just grit your teeth and go along. Mm-hmm. You can still be there, right? So it's almost like they were just unwilling to change. Yeah. Right? They were unwilling to try to make a film in sound, right? Right. Or, you know, compromising the way you make films. Right. They were almost, it's almost like they were unwilling to do that. Therefore, well, then you deserve not to be in this business because you're not willing to try. Uh, right. Is what it seemed like to me, the audience. Well, and, and, you know, that's also, you know, a big thing in, uh, shout out to the beginning of this season, Hollywood, uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, if you're not, you know, Jake has to learn how to adapt to the changing times. Yeah. Otherwise, as his fear, I'll become a has-been. Right. And he finally embraces the change, as we talked about, or I think we talked about. It's implied, at least. Um, <laughs> if not, we're talking about it now. We're talking about it now. <laughs> a that he whole does, season later. That he does embrace the change and go, goes and makes spaghetti westerns, as where Norma and Max... Refuse. Refuse. Uh, that makes sense, you know, because I know also... Because I remember the first time I ever saw this film with my mom... Because my mom was like, yeah, we're watching it. You need, I want to say she essentially said, you need an education. Because <laughs> um, we talked about that. I, I asked her, I was like, well, you know, and she even mentioned how some silent film stars didn't want to do talkies. Yeah. Um, you know, and. They didn't think they could. I think, again, it's that, you know, my characters, my ideas don't mm-hmm. lend itself for them to talk and if they did they're not going to sound right right you know it's that fear as well yeah and so so that makes sense you know because also the other big you know and this is human history if you're not willing to change you will be left behind yep. you know and um and that's further evidenced when uh she first shows joe her script and he's like oh a comeback eh? and she's like i hate that word it's a return implying that she just took a break, but she's coming back. When, in fact, in fact, it is a comeback. Which again, another reference, as I mentioned at the beginning, this was Gloria Swanson's comeback. Right. But um, but that wouldn't have bothered her. Yeah. Well, yeah. She right. she's like, oh, come back. I now uh, let's go. Gloria, um, sorry, um, <laughs> Norma Desmond and LL Cool J have very similar. Have very similar ideas about the word comeback. Um, don't call it a comeback. But, all right. Ah, uh, sorry. You said it so many times, and that's all I could think about was LL Cool J. <laughs> um, anyway, so <laughs> when they Paul, go to when they go to visit the set, yes. Which uh, again, super super cool that Paramount was like, yeah, like show show our front gates. Try to get a movie studio to do that now, and it's virtually impossible. Like, no, don't show people what we're doing. Um, what do you think this is? Uh, what do you think this is a Miramax picture for Kevin Smith? Shout out, Jane, and the Bob Shark. I hate you so much. So, uh, <laughs> when they go to visit set and they finally get onto set, mm-hmm. um, 
And I love I love Cecil B. DeMille's reveal, right? Because it's like an intern, like an, uh, like an associate uh, producer, maybe. Yeah, like, like, yeah. It's getting to him, and once it finally gets to him, you're like, hey, that's Cecil B. That's really him. Oh, and I read right. that apparently the movie he's filming it w- was legitimately a movie he was, he was filming. filming. I wonder if they just called him up like, hey, we're, we're coming to set. We got to, you know, we're doing this. How many extra film cameras can you fit in there? <laughs> and know? he was probably like, bro, I got you, fam. Like four. <laughs> like, like, you got it. Four. And like two extras. Yeah. Got it. You got it. Uh, yeah, yeah. And it's, it's very almost kind of uh, Hitchcocky in his reveal. He turns. Because yeah, we yeah, just yeah. see the back of his head and he turns. Yeah. And I guess like, it's for like the audience who at that time have seen a bunch of his movies. Right. Are just like, oh my God, that's Cecil B. DeMille. <laughs> that's Cecil B. DeMille. What? It's kind of like when, well, this isn't a great example because it's not in English, but uh, Fritz Lang is in a Louise Bunuel film right, oh. as Fritz Lang. Right? Oh, yeah. Um, and so it's sort of like that, where you're like, hey, that's Fred's line, right? Yeah. Or that's Cecil B. DeMille. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, because they're like, Gloria, uh, Norma Desmond? Norma Desmond? Norma Desmond. What? <gasps> oh, she's here about the script. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. And, and it's and it's super cool that Paramount, again, that like Paramount was cool with it, that they were okay with being like, yeah, like, mm, We'll get back to that reveal, but I, I really like it when, even though these are fictional characters, they're interacting with real world things. Yes. Like, uh, I mean, this isn't the best example, but like uh, with Enter the Spider Verse. I was gonna say Hugo, but Hugo. Oh yeah, yeah, H- yeah. Shout out to our Hugo episode, but but like Into the Spider Verse, they all have Sony products. Oh right. But of course, it's a they fucked up because that means that in that reality. Sony actually exists. And, well, and then, you know, in... In Miles' reality, um, Stan Lee... Also exists. Right, and yeah. is, like, working at that place. Uh, which is a fun cameo. But, but anyway, but yeah, yeah, yeah. The, but so, so I just, I really like when they take this fictional world and they put real-world things again. Shout-out to our Hugo episode, because... That's that's what that whole movie is—a fictional character interacting with a a very real person, a very real person. Um, so I just I really like that. I really like that Paramount was like, yeah, like Cecil's filming in here. Just yeah, just just be mindful because he's making us uh, a picture. Yeah, um, yeah, I love that. Uh, but yeah, and you know, and so then we get more added onto uh, Norma's delusions yes. with all of this because not only is I think the audience is going to expect them to set her straight, right? Right. We want your car. Your script is terrible. But instead, she gets swooned by fans, right? Mm -hmm. The lighting operator knows who she is, probably worked on a couple of her movies, shines the spotlight on her, right? Literally. Mm -hmm. And, you know, she is getting this positive feedback which and is feeding into this delusion that she is still wrong. That oh my god, they they do love me. They want me back, and it's you know because in that during all of this, Cecil is talking to a um, I'm assuming a, uh, a a DA about why have you been calling her? And he's like, well, we want her car for this picture we got. And he's like, you want her car? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We just yeah, need yeah, her it's, car. It's perfect. For yeah. what we're doing. And it is cool. It's like... Yeah, uh, it's a 
dope car. Yeah, it's reminiscent of like the Adams family car or something. Yeah, like it's I could do without the leather uh, interior, uh, the leopard print interior. Really? Yeah. Nah. No, it's super fly, and I like. <laughs> nah, dude. Uh, to, I'm, I'm trying to bring back uh, this word, so I'm gonna say, dude, that um, that interior is totally nectar. So. <laughs> So, nectar, oh yeah, my god. It's totally nectar. So like I, I think it's super cool and uh Haley said the exact same thing you just did, which is like, oh, that's ugly. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, it's not. It's super cool. So it's nectar, yeah. <laughs> but, but, but anyway, yeah, yeah. So and so yeah, yeah, you so you think once Cecil gets the reveal of why they've been calling her, yeah, you think like, okay, he's gonna sit her down and be like, okay. Norma, here's the deal. But also, you understand why he doesn't. Because it, it works on paper. Mm-hmm. Go tell her her script sucks and we just want your car. But in practice, it's like, I don't want to hurt her feelings. Right. right? Yeah, she's she's been put through enough. Right. Is, and, is essentially what he and says. And that they, they know each other. Right. Right. So, yeah, yeah. And it, it's one of those things of like, why do I have to be the one to break the news to her? Yeah. That her script is terrible. They just want her car. And the fact that when she leaves, he's like, don't use her car. Stop calling her. Get another car. Yeah, it doesn't yeah. matter. Uh, yeah, I love it. He says, tell Cole I'll buy him five cars. Yeah. Because he's just like. I don't. It's not worth dealing with her. Right. Right. Yeah. Because because I even think he recognizes she is so far into her own delusion. Anything they tell her is going to put her over that edge. Yeah. She's in a fantasy world. And he doesn't want to feed into that. Yeah. I think he sees the danger in that. Yes. But uh, ironically, him not saying anything is still feeding into that. Yes. So it's... So, Rain. Yes. How dangerous we talking? Talking Johnny dangerously. That's not what I meant. I meant (laughs) we're moving on to the the climax of the movie. Oh. Um, Jesus Christ. Uh, I, shout out to uh, Michael Keaton. Oh my god. Yeah, bro. Michael okay. Keaton. Oh my god. Johnny so, Dangerously. So future episode. How how dangerous can she be? Well, apparently well, pretty dangerous. Pretty yeah. When uh, yeah. So yeah, because she first goes overboard with like, okay, now I got to lose weight. I got to get right. I really do like this montage. Yeah, it's it's super cool to uh, see. What it was like in the fifties, how like this, how we lose weight. And you could even think maybe it's not, even, even up to modern day fifties standards. Maybe this is still silent film era ways of losing weight and clearing up your skin and all yeah. that stuff. It could be like really old school. I don't know enough about it, but it almost seems like why would she do modern day things? She would most likely do something. Right. It took, uh, I mean, we don't see it, but, you know, she finally, you know, it took a lot for her to finally, like, fix her house up and get the pool yeah. working and all that stuff. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but yeah, that, yeah, the montage is really cool. Um, but yeah, it, but it's all finally coming to a head because Joe is sneaking out and working on another script with Betty. Which has potential, yeah. Um, according to Betty, because apparently, I guess she, uh, I guess she can tell the difference in a crappy script versus a. And I don't even know if they even have readers anymore. 
So probably not. <laughs> um, who knows? Yeah, I guess I would... maybe that's not their main job anymore. Like, uh, there's no way. Right. Yeah, and so so he's been working on this uh, untitled lover script, uh, which has potential. Yeah. And Norma's not having any of it. Nope. So she starts to resorting to uh, calling, as it's revealed uh, through great exposition, uh, been calling Betty multiple times and freaking her out. Yeah. Um, Because Betty's roommate, Connie, is like, it's that woman with the weird accent again or something like that. Yeah. Um, And finally, Joe's like, all right, this needs to stop. Yeah. I'm leaving. Um, but I love the reveal of the revolver. Yeah. Um, because she tells Joe that she went and bought a new revolver today, and she stood in front of her mirror implying, I guess, another suicide attempt, but she couldn't bring herself to yes. do it. And then she sits up, and we see the revolver right underneath her arm. Yeah. And it's, it's such a cool reveal. And so, exactly. And so when she gets up to confront him, when she goes back... We know exactly what she's going to get, right? Yes, because Joe doesn't see it at first. And so she's like, you don't believe me. Uh, because at this point, you know, she has been very dramatic and, and, and embellishing. And so she shows it to him and he's still like, nah, I don't, pretty much I don't care. If yeah. you kill yourself, I, I don't care. Yeah, I'm fault. going back to Dayton, the most boring city in Ohio. Um, it's pretty much what he says because you know he's taken off his uh, his watches that she's bought him and and his solid gold uh, cigarette case. cigarette case because um, he's like that's too flashy for a desk job in Dayton Ohio yeah. and then um, and then we get the most iconic scene in the film she caps Joe a few times oh yeah. Uh, once, once in the back, and I guess Joe just tries to shrug it off because he, because <laughs> he, you know, he leans forward and just kind of keeps walking. And then she shoots him again, and that's what makes him yeah. kind of turn around. I think it's sort of like there's no way she just shot me, and then it's like, oh my god, she oh just my shot god, me. she shot me. Yeah. yeah, and then she, as because we already know because he's because he says in yeah. the in the opening narration, you know, two slugs in the back and one in the stomach. Yeah, and he turns to look at her, and then that's when she boom, boom. And he falls into the pool. And now we go to my favorite part of the movie, which is she is now so far gone. Yes. And this is the 12. Right? Yes. She's, she yeah. is completely far gone. And she has mistaken these uh, news, news cameras. cameras and photographers and, uh, and police officers for a film set. She thinks Cecil B. DeMille is down there and mm-hmm. that she is... Um, Finally getting uh, to be back in the spotlight and be back in filmmaking. Yes. And she doesn't, even when the movie ends, she doesn't get it. Yeah. Uh, with her, with the most famous line. That is always misquoted. Yes. Uh, the quote is, all right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close up. Right. And the film ends. Yeah. it's And of course, it's this completely surreal ending of like you know no one is going after her everyone is just still right and sort of in shock I guess. yeah yeah i was just about to say almost in shock that she is so she doesn't understand why they're there you know because you know we're seeing the police ask her questions like was there 
you know, like, was there an altercation, ma'am? Because they don't even know what happened. Yeah. Dead guy in her pool. Yeah. What's going on? What's going on? Was was he trying to steal something that you caught him? Were you fighting? And she won't answer them. Right. It's almost like she thinks that they are reporters or, you know, they're like tabloid, you know, uh, magazine people or whatever. Mm -hmm. Like she doesn't like her grip on reality is gone. Gone. Oh, and I love uh, when Max is like, you know, there's cameras. And she's like, cameras? Cameras. And the one officer's like, what's well, a way to get her downstairs? Because, you know, I guess since they didn't have probable cause to actually put her in handcuffs, it's at least a way to get her downstairs so that the, maybe they can get her into a car. Right. And finally unravel what happened. Which will be impossible because she doesn't know what's going on. Yeah, and for sure Max isn't going to say anything. No. No, he'd ride or die for sure. (laughs) Like 50 Cent? Yeah. You know, that's right. Ride or die. Ride or die. Uh, Yeah, and, you know, the only person who could have maybe given some light to this is Betty. Mm -hmm. And she for sure... Well, we don't know. After, well, at least for me, how I interpret it, after uh, after what Joe says to her, she's like, nah. Uh, Mean that Joe guy? Yeah, we're done. And what Billy Wilder does with the dissolve... Um, at the end, mm-hmm. I love because it's almost a a visual representation of her just going insane, yeah. right? Uh, for lack of a better term, uh, and so the dissolve into the the end, mm-hmm. I love. Um, oh yeah, and uh, Billy Wilder's a genius. But. Yeah, man, the the film is it's so good, it's so well shot and framed. I love, and maybe this is because of how many classic movies we've done on the podcast already, but I love all the, all the over-the-shoulder shots. Um, I love all the push-ins because they're so fluid, mm-hmm. you know, because when people often think classic, you know, and they think black and white, they think of very, you know, wooden acting and, and uh not very technical shots. Yeah, static shots. Just, yeah. You know, the camera doesn't move. But doesn't move. this film is so great, especially with with the shooting. Um, Another great film about the change from uh, from silent to talkies is Singing in the Rain. So. Oh. Yeah. Um, that's another good one. So check out Singing in the Rain. Also. Yeah. Uh, hope we hopefully we didn't ruin it for you guys when we did a Clockwork Orange. Uh, yeah. Obviously, that's the whole thing. So uh, <laughs> we ruined it. But Gene Kelly, Deborah Reynolds, go see Singing in the Rain. Yes. Uh, it's amazing. It's been a long time since I've seen that movie too. It is dope. Um, but yeah, man, it's. I think I think if anyone still has any reservations. That's the name of the podcast. That's the name of the show we're doing. Uh, but if anyone has any reservations of seeing a black and white film, I think this is a good gateway. Hopefully not our audience, but... Um, yeah, anyone out there. Like, if anyone has any reservations like about... Like, you have friends or whatever that are like, I don't like old movies or I don't have any interest in it. Show them this one. I think this is a good gateway Yeah. Um, to seeing black and white films. Because now I have at least... I think Six, for me, seven, it would eight, be... Nine, ten. At least ten black and white. No, eleven, uh, Sunrise. Oh, um, Sunrise. 
11 black and white films on my bookshelf and everyone just got saw me count that in real time that's super fun <laughs> for podcasting but i i think for me if i think the twilight zone was what got me oh dude oh dude, it. dude because oh. they're they're digestible they're mm-hmm. short and they are so creative absolutely that it sort of desensitizes you to black and white because um, I, for me, it's insane to even think that anyone would care. Uh, but it's been so long since I've even thought about. Well, but then again, you know, we're in this really. If it is or isn't. You right. know, with with twenty one eye twenty twenty one eyes, we're in this really weird time where people are finally experimenting with film and going back and watching classics and watching foreign films. So who knows, you know? You're right, because I think, especially now, um, Bong Joon-ho really sort of, I mean, it, it with Parasite. Dude, shout out to our Parasite episode. Just obliterated the idea of... Of what a foreign film can be. and oh. For American audiences. Dude. So... Parasite. Oh, yeah, and I mean, it's not... I would even say it's not even the greatest foreign film I've ever seen, but it, it is, is. It's phenomenal. But it is a groundbreaking film to introduce people to different styles of film, and I think that, you know, I don't think there's been really. I think black and white is sort of a different viewpoint because there's yeah. not work involved, right? Like you would think that foreign films are work because you have to read, right? Right. But with black and white, I think it's just holding someone's attention. Yeah. Is what the fear is, maybe. Yeah, because, you know, perfect example with uh, Joe's solid gold cigarette case. We, as the audience, we have to imagine... They have to say it's... They have to say it's gold, yeah, because it looks silver or gray. Yeah. You know, but I think that's what the appeal of black and white is, you know. It, it is... It is... You have to imagine what these colors actually look like. Right. You know. But, um... But yeah, man, uh, I think this is a good... Yeah, good choice. You know, uh, again, if anyone out there, you know, anyone knows, start with this. So, Jeremy. Yes, sir. Are you ready to uh, wrap up, wrap up, wrap up? I am ready to wrap up, wrap up, wrap up. Um, this is a great film. This is a great... Uh, this is a great sort of mid-noir film. Yeah. Which is great. I would even say that Norma Desmond is the femme fatale. Uh, I was just... Film. I was going to ask you that. Because um, normally I don't like... That's not one of my favorite tropes. For film noir, the which film is why I, I love M because it doesn't have one. Yeah. Right. Um, but I do. I would consider her a film fatale in this. Oh, one. for sure. Not a traditional one, which mm-hmm. makes it sort of an interesting take on this subgenre mm-hmm. of crime films. Um, but it, you know, like we stated in our film noir episode, it's not a real genre. So yeah, um, it's a sort of made up one. Oh, yeah. Uh, I got one. Oops, I forgot. Okay, cool. And then uh, Neat. Uh, we can tell everyone uh, about next week. Sure. Um, and do you think we should tell them about the series, or should we wait till next week as well? We might wait till next week for that. All right. All right. Give them a little, 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 little surprise next week. <laughs> anyway, okay. My, my one oops, I forgot. Uh, to further, I wanted to talk about a little bit just how Norma is very, um, I wouldn't say prissy. But she's very particular uh-huh. to the fact that she smokes her cigarette with a ring yes. that she puts on her finger. I completely forgot about that. To smoke her cigarettes because... It's she, very peculiar because people mention it. And, and Joe mentions it... More than once. More than once. Yeah. Uh, and it's... You know what? I get it. So she can't... Uh, because if anyone out there smokes cigarettes, uh, the more you smoke, the more the... Uh, 
the uh, filters in the cigarette yellow your fingernails. Yeah. So as a faded Hollywood actress trying to hold on to her image, she doesn't want to be seen with yellow fingernails. So she puts a ring on so she can smoke her cigarettes. It is very fun. Yeah. Uh, it's very unique and very peculiar. Yes. Uh, but also smart and practical. Sure. Simultaneously. Yeah. I mean, and you get to still smoke, which is awesome. So <laughs> smoking is cool. So, uh, I mean, just ask any character that uh, <laughs> that Ryan Gosling plays. It's, <laughs> it's the coolest. Right. But he doesn't smoke in Crazy Stupid Love. It doesn't matter. Okay, it's Drive, it's Place Beyond the Pines, it's I probably Gangster Squad. I didn't say Gangster Squad, but um, but his coolest character is Smoke. Oh, uh, only God forgives. He smokes in that one too. So, um, <laughs> All right. Smoking is cool. Go ahead. So, Jeremy. Yes, sir. What are we talking about next week? I'm very excited. Because I didn't want to know. This is my last pick for this season uh, yes. before our end of series. And I... I was racking my brain. I was like, how sad can I get? Oh, God. Right? And I didn't. I didn't end on a really sad one. Oh, okay. But I wanted to end on one that um, that after years and years of watching this movie, um, I finally understand it. And you really do have to sort of sit with it and understand the relevance and understand the relevance of the title and um, get why it's done in this certain way and understand, I mean, understand all of it, right? Okay. Uh, next week we are talking about no country for old men. Oh, fuck. Yeah. <laughs> um, this is my favorite Coen brothers film, probably, uh, besides Fargo. Um, and one best picture for the films of 2007. Yes. Um, beat there will be blood. Uh, which damn, I bet Daniel Day Lewis was pissed. Which is so funny because um, No Country for Old Men had to halt filming because they were filming in the same area as there as, will be blood. As there will be blood, and the the fire from one of the scenes that they have to set an oil well on fire, you could see it in the background, and really? so they're like, we knock it off. Uh, we gotta wait for the smoke to die down or whatever that's um, fucking funny yeah uh, and it's a Texas film they yes. uh, they mention Odessa in, uh, in oh, yeah because that's right they go to like West Texas it is in West Texas they go to Del Rio fuck uh, me dude it, yeah so one of the, uh, my little teaser for the, for, for next week and then we'll, we'll end the episode uh, one of the things that I always gravitated towards with this film is there's no score yeah. it's completely it's all dialogue and I love it Yes, I, you know, it's one of the most iconic, now, one of the most iconic um, villains of all time, Anton Chigurh. Um, Javier Bardem is the fucking man, okay? Yeah. Dude, I'm so excited. So, I'm really, like, okay. (laughs) I'm going to go and say it now, because we're almost to the end of this season. Like, this season, I have been really excited to talk about a film after I've seen it, but... Now, this is a movie I have already seen, and I am so excited to talk about it. Yeah. Again, because I also love the Coen brothers. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, man. Next week, No Country for no Old Country Men. No Country for Old Men. Hell yeah. Yeah. Hell yeah. <laughs> All right, everyone. Well, we hope you enjoyed Sunset Boulevard, and we will see you next week for No Country for Old Men. 